You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Well, good morning, everyone. It's really encouraging to see you all on this beautiful Sunday morning. It's good to see that the youth uh, and the youth leaders survived last night. Um, <clears throat> well done, Brad and crew. Um, over the past two weeks, as we've uh, jumped back into our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke, we've been reminded through Christ's ministry and his teaching of just how important it is that we live each day in anticipation of his return. And we, we look forward to that. We, we, we hope in it. We prepare for it. We live for him with faith and perseverance so that when he does return with righteous judgment <clears throat> in order to, to serve us and, and, and restore all things and establish his kingdom in full, that he finds faith on this earth. And, and today we're going to be rounding out that very same topic, like the final in a trilogy of messages of sorts, as we finish up chapter 13 of the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus reminds and pleads with his listeners to strive to enter into the kingdom of God before that day comes, while they can. So uh, let's turn to Luke 13. We're going to be starting at verse 22 and going to verse 35. Luke 13, 22 to 35. So Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I did not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and and drank in your presence and, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes 
in the name of the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. All right, so rumor has it, and, and I won't name names, no judgment for here, but uh, I've been told that there's a church on the north side somewhere that shuts and locks its door at the very moment their service starts. So, so what that means if, is that if you were going to this church one Sunday morning, uh, but you were running late for whatever reason, too bad, you're hooped, you're not getting in, the door opens for no one once, once that service time starts. Isn't that crazy? Um, but, you know, if that works for them. But, you know, imagine if we did that at our church. On some Sundays, there'd be like 10 people in here, right? Most of our congregation would be standing outside looking in, like... I'm mostly exaggerating, of course. It's not that bad, but still, you know, I don't know. Maybe if we did start locking the doors at 10 a.m., then people would show up on time. Um, most of you did pretty well today, though. Um, so, you know, again, I'm kidding, I think. But anyways, th- this, this picture of being on the outside looking in is one which Jesus describes to us in this passage. He gives us a very vivid and, and let's be honest, a heartbreaking picture of many souls trapped outside of the kingdom of God looking in. Maybe they'd tarried too long, or they'd refused to enter, or they'd chosen a different door that seemed easier to them. But for whatever reason, they'd, they'd been unwilling to enter into the kingdom of God when that door was open. And now that the master has come and shut it, Jesus says they're all left outside, looking in with only their misery and their regret, with weeping and gnashing of teeth, it says. And and, and I think the point Jesus seems to be making here is simply this. Make sure that it isn't you. What's what's intriguing about this passage is that when, when someone asks him, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? The, the man asking this question seems to think that access to the kingdom of God will be limited. But Jesus, as he often does, doesn't directly answer this question, but turns it around. He turns it back to the heart of the matter. And instead of, instead of giving him a number of how many will be saved, he addresses the crowd saying this instead. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. He's basically telling them and us, don't worry about how many, just make sure that you are one of them. As Daryl Bach, a theologian, writes, Jesus has turned the question around. His questioner had asked, will the saved be few? But Jesus replies with the question, will the saved be you? It rhymes so that you can remember it. Jesus' concern here, and, and make no mistake, he is concerned, is, is to make sure that we enter through the narrow doorway of salvation while we can, while the opportunity is for there. For that, that is the reason Jesus came to us. That's why he died for us, to save sinners and give us a way into the house of God, into the presence of a holy God once again, the way it was supposed to be. He came to be the way. And he even states that this way is open for all peoples. It says that people of all nations, 
from east and west and north and south will be invited to recline at the table of the Lord. That's such a beautiful picture. And that includes you. As Daryl Bach again writes, the surprise in Jesus' reply is not that access may be limited, but who gains entry? We all have equal access to God's blessing through Jesus, but expectations are overturned as there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Again, that, that door of salvation is available for all. And Jesus is the way. And anyone who confesses and believes in his name gets in. As John 14, 1 to 6 confirms, this is Jesus speaking. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we do not know where you are going, even though we just told them. How, how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I remember one evening when, when Audrey and I were driving back to Lethbridge from Calgary, and it happened to be extremely windy, as it often is. That day it was over 100 kilometer per hour winds, so much so that semi-trucks were tipping over and uh, the highway was unsafe, and so because of that, uh, the highway from Nanton to Claire's home was closed off. They, they closed it down, which meant that most people including us, who were, who were traveling, traveling south that day, got stuck in Nanton. Yikes. Including us. Again, I had to point that out. We got stuck in Nanton. Unfortunately, we also arrived pretty late in the evening, and all the hotels were booked up. All except this one place, which was located above, uh, above a pretty dingy bar. Um... We went in there, and I'm not going to lie. We went in there to ask about a room, and I'm not going to lie. It was, it was pretty sketchy. The guy actually asked us, are you sure? Um, but we were really tired. We were really tired, and, and we really had no choice. And so we booked a room. He gave us the key. And when we walked into that room, we, were instantly, we, we instantly regretted not just sleeping in the car. Because what we found in the room were clumps of cat hair, an opened soap bar in a dirty shower stall, permanently stained sheets, pillows that were thinner than a folded pair of jeans, a Gideon Bible, which we were like, oh, at least there's a Bible in here, but then we found that there was inappropriate stuff written in it. There was a fridge that didn't work. And to be honest, I thought we were going to be murdered in the night or catch some rare disease, one or the other. It was basically hell. I still get shivers up my spine when I remember it or when I drive by it. Because every time we drive to Calgary, we drive right by it. It's this dingy bar, and it just says hotel. 
on the side. You might have seen it. And every time I remember it, I think, if only we'd arrived in Nanton sooner, then we'd have been able to get a room at one of the cleaner, normal hotels. And, you know, I think, in a way, this is what Jesus is getting at, except it's not for a night, it's for eternity, right? The the truth is that there are many rooms in his Father's house, in the kingdom of God, and Jesus has prepared one for you. But here's the plea. Don't delay in booking that room, or you'll find yourself stuck in a trashy one in Nanton. (sighs) Metaphorically speaking, that is. And on that end, what's, what's notable about this passage is that Jesus' main concern seems to be more about the fact that way too many, way too many souls won't make it through the narrow way. He states with grave concern that many will seek to enter, but won't be able to because they'll have run out of time. They'll find that the master of the house has already closed the door. They'll find that the day of the Lord has already come and gone, and they'll find themselves left outside looking in. And what should be alarming for us is that some of these people who didn't get in are those who thought they were already in. Many who are first will be last, he says. Maybe they thought their their, their good works or their genetic line, part of the people of Israel, or, or whatever, would give them the penthouse view in God's house. But instead, he says that those who thought they'd be first will find themselves peeking into the kingdom, only to see Abraham and, and Isaac and the prophets and many other people from east and north and south and west reclining at the table of the Lord, being served by Jesus himself. Remember, we learned that two weeks ago, that Jesus, when he comes again, We're ready to serve him, but he says, you recline at the table and I will serve you. And so they see that. And so he says that they're going to see that and they'll bang on the door and they'll say, Lord, but but, but, but we heard you preach. And we ate and we, we drank with you when you were here. What's up? Let us in. But the Lord will respond, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me. You workers of evil. So first of all, there's no space for evil or sin within the kingdom of God. That's why it has to be removed from us through Jesus by his blood. But Jesus' reply to them also makes it clear that exposure to Jesus is not the same as believing in him and being covered in his righteousness and knowing him by faith. In other words, we can go to church and we can do the motions and we can act good and we can be religious and we can know our theology. But striving to enter the narrow way is about surrendering to Jesus. It's about making every effort, like an athlete in training, to give our lives to Christ. And this is why the door is narrow. It's wide open, but it's narrow. Again, it's, it's inclusive and it's available to all. But it's narrow because, first of all, it's the only way. And secondly, we can't take anything with us. 
right? It's about humbly laying down our sinful lives and taking up our cross. And, and this is why so many fail or refuse to enter in. They, they want to make their own way, and they, or they want to take the world with them, or both. But make no mistake, that this fact is also incredibly heartbreaking for Jesus, who, who, then, who we then find weeping and, and grieving at the state of Jerusalem. And, and generally speaking, it's, it's collective unwillingness to enter into his salvation. Right? With almost a, a motherly or paternal tone, he cries out in verse 34, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem! the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. He desires to gather his people Israel into his arms. He desires to rescue them from themselves, from their sin, to, to, to protect them and comfort them. Even despite the fact that they'd already rejected the Lord's call over and over, generation after generation, even killing many of the, the prophets that he'd sent to speak to them. And yet their house, he says, has become forsaken because they're unwilling. Because they're unwilling. But Jesus is still willing. Even though he knows he'll face their rejection, he's still willing to go to the depths of hell and back for us. And that's why even though some Pharisees tell him to flee because King Herod wants to kill him, we're not sure of their motivation there, whether they just wanted to get rid of Jesus or whether they were trying to protect him, who knows? But they tell him to flee because Herod wants to kill him, but Jesus doesn't waver in his mission to Jerusalem. He's not afraid of Herod or, or anyone else for that matter because he knows his purpose. And so he tells them from verse 32, go and tell that fox. I like how he says that. He calls him a fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away for Jerusalem. So despite opposition, Jesus never wavers in his purpose to proclaim the kingdom with with good works, with healing and casting out demons. And above all, he never wavers in his mission to head to Jerusalem, where he knows he will die on the cross. Where for the joy set before him, he'll endure it to the point of death for the glory of God and the salvation of all is our perfect sacrifice. And on the third day, he'll finish his course. And we know that on the third day, he proved that, that his justifying and his saving work was finished at the cross and that, that our shame and death was defeated when he triumphantly rose from the grave. That's his grace. That's his love. That's his mercy poured out for you. That's the door opening for you. We know that the curtain in the temple was split in two the moment he died. That's his door to the presence of God opening for you, for your sake, for your salvation. And so from now on until he comes again, 
until that day when we all bow down and proclaim, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The way of salvation, the way into the presence of God has been opened through Jesus. So as Hebrews 4.11 states, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And again, that, that word, word strive, which Jesus also uses from our passage in Luke, it, that's akin to, to an athlete training for a race or someone struggling with all they are to do something, to accomplish something. But I want to make it clear that this striving is, isn't about doing more or being better or making ourselves worthy to go through the door by doing good works or making ourselves righteous. No, it's the opposite. In, in a sense, this striving is a striving to stop striving, which is, which is amazing. Jesus says elsewhere, for all who are weary and heavy laden to come to him and find rest, to lay down their burdens upon him and then take up his yoke, which is easy and light. Again, this is a striving to come to Jesus so we can stop striving. It's an invitation to make every effort to, to humbly respond in faith to the good news and the way of Jesus, to cast aside the things and the ways of the world, to cast aside our, our pride and our fleshly desires through heartfelt repentance so that we can experience the spiritual rest and the freedom from our, our guilt and our worldly striving, which Jesus freely and unconditionally offers us by his grace alone. We don't have to strive as the world strives anymore. Through Christ, as we surrender to him, we find freedom, we find grace, we find forgiveness. But in the same vein, we keep reading through Hebrews, we find that Hebrews 4.1 also states, it says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, while it's still available, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. In other words, while we should think on our own salvation, and be sure to enter into the narrow way ourselves, we should also have concern for our fellow man. Just as Jesus weeped and, and grieved and gave concern to, to those who had not yet entered in, so should we. As, as it says, let us fear that anyone should fail to reach it before it's too late. The truth is that, that we don't know how many will be saved. We don't know, but like Jesus, we should be concerned that too many currently aren't. Right? We should be concerned that too many currently aren't. As it says in Jude 1, 20 to 25, but you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, expecting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. But then, what does it say? Have mercy on those who doubt and save others by snatching them from the fire. 
Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So as, as we wait for the day of our salvation to come in full, as we await and anticipate Christ's return, we're called to proclaim Christ's saving grace to others. It says to mercifully save others by snatching them from the fire. Think of that picture, snatching them, reaching in and pulling them out, praying for them, pleading with them in love, proving Christ to them, persuading them in the word, pursuing them for Jesus' sake, planting the seed of the gospel in their lives so that the spirit of the Lord can cultivate it and grow it within them. And yes, some might be unwilling to listen and receive, just like Jesus experienced himself. Some might be unwilling, but we have to try. While there's still time, we have to try. We're meant to try. And some of you might be thinking, well, who am I to preach the gospel? I'm I'm no pastor. I'm I'm not smart enough. I'm not great at speaking or whatever other excuse you have. Well, don't worry, we're not, we're not called to, to convince people through the smoothness of our speech, but by the genuineness of our hearts and with the power of the gospel. 1 Corinthians one twenty one says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You don't have to be a great orator or, or an intellectual apologist or a theologian to share Christ's love or, or even just simply invite someone to church. No, as, as long as you're in Christ and filled with his spirit, as long as you've been changed by the gospel, you've been chosen and empowered and called by God to do it. And the gospel stands on its own. It doesn't need our smooth speech. The gospel stands on its own. It's powerful to save. People just need to hear it. How can they be saved if they don't? They need to hear it. And besides, like Jesus, our, our, our hearts should truly break for the lost and for the broken and the condemned, those who are still living in darkness where we once walked. Our love for them our love for Jesus and his love for them should drive us to proclaim Christ crucified to them. And of course, if we did truly care, we would also desire to keep growing in our knowledge of the word and in our preparedness and in our ability to proclaim it to them. Ultimately, we should be compelled in God's love to go to the ends of the earth in the power of his spirit to tell the world that Jesus is the way until he comes again. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, for who you are. I thank you, Lord, that you are the God of mercy, that you are a God of love, that you are a God of grace, that you are a God of compassion, that you are a God of justice. And Lord God, I thank you that you sent your one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to take justice upon himself, to take our judgment upon himself, to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that we would no longer be separated from you 
or at enmity with you, Lord God. But so that we could be forgiven, covered in his righteousness, so that we could enter into the narrow way through Jesus to enter into your presence, to have the hope of eternal life. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning that hasn't entered in through that narrow way, Lord, that you would draw them in, that you would give them the, the, the courage and the humility right now to respond to your invitation to come to you and find rest, to lay down their burdens, to lay down their sin, to lay down their shame, to lay down their guilt and find forgiveness and rest at your feet, Lord. Lord, I thank you that you never gave up on us. Lord, that you never wavered in your mission to rescue us and to save us from ourselves. Lord, even as we see your example of, of, of your love and your concern and the way that you weep over those who are lost, Lord, I pray that you would you would change our hearts, that our hearts would break for the same thing that yours break for, Lord. That we would see the lost, that we would see the broken, that we would see those still wandering in darkness, and that we wouldn't look on them with, with judgment or condemnation, Lord, but we would look on them with compassion, with a desire to share your love and your grace and your truth with them. That we would have a desire to share your saving gospel with them, Lord so that they would be able to come into the kingdom as well. Lord, I pray that you would give us opportunity, that you would give us boldness, that you would give us courage to go out into the world and proclaim your name. Lord, give us an urgency as we're reminded as well that you are coming again, even as we hope in it and anticipate it for you to renew all things, Lord. Give us an urgency so that when you come, you will find faith on this earth. Jesus, we give you all the glory, all the praise, for you are the only one worthy, for you are the only way, truth, and life. Amen.